Hi, my name's Anna Knight. I'll be hosting this podcast over the next 16 days as part of 2022's 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence campaign. While the rest of these podcast episodes are going to be me interviewing someone, I was encouraged to start the whole series off by interviewing myself to talk about my experience, what I believe in, and what I've learned over the years about gender-based violence. When you think of the past few years, we've had a big increase in awareness as a result of Tarana Burke starting the Me Too movement as part of the COVID pandemic. There have been worldwide campaigns. There's a real feeling that these activist movements that are out there are creating brilliant awareness, catalyzing change. So this year's campaign is aiming at building on that as growing the work that these movements have already done. I had a chat with my parents a few months ago now. It was me and my partner sat down on Zoom with my parents and trying to get across to my parents what the scale of that violence meant. I think my dad in particular found it really difficult how that figure scales. So I said to him, one in three women, and he was like, well, if I know 60 women, you're telling me that 20 of them have experienced gender-based violence. I was like, yeah. He's like, no, no. If I know 60 women, 20 of them are going to have experienced this. And I was like, yeah. The current global estimates say that on average, a woman or girl is killed by someone in her own family every 11 minutes that we know that things like COVID intensified violence against women and girls. It showed us that there were these big power imbalances and structural inequalities. It brought a lot of awareness to it, but we're still not getting it right. And I'm not really wanting to bring any shame or judgment here. I fully understand why my dad couldn't get his head around the scale of that violence. Because it is, it's shocking. I will fully admit that in 2017, I did not understand anything really about gender-based violence. I was working as a paediatric speech therapist. I had sat in yearly safeguarding trainings for the past eight or nine years where I'd been taught this stuff and I, I knew nothing. What really drove home to me how little I understood is that I was sat in the lovely welcoming offices of Newcastle Women's Aid with their staff attending my first meeting of the Freedom Programme there. I had been politely encouraged to attend by my social worker who I had been assigned after something I told a counsellor in a session because they were concerned about the things that I was telling my counsellor and I thought you know what I think I'll go to women's aid and I'll prove to them that I've not experienced domestic violence and then I'll be off again and that's not how that went so I was sat there in a lovely welcoming office feeling very confused Because even with my professional training and all the things that I had learned, I was expecting to be in a room of downtrodden, bruised up, 
lower socioeconomic class women who were talking about how their boyfriends and husbands just couldn't help it when they were drunk or they weren't that bad really, they only hit them on weekends. Or I had all these really false views of what domestic violence was and who it happened to in my head. And I was sat there surrounded by the most bright and brilliant and witty women just going, oh my god. (laughs) I was so prejudiced in what I believed, in who I believed domestic violence could happen to. There were people who worked in the local hospital. There was someone who did data analysis. There were people who were nurses and businesswomen and, yeah, some people who worked in supermarkets and stay-at-home mums and executives. And the the mix was phenomenal. And that, I think, was wake-up call number one. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe it could be a woman like me, right? Yeah. And then the session started. And for those of you who don't know, the Freedom Program is used quite widely, helping people who've survived domestic violence to understand how it works, about what goes on in an abusive relationship. So it breaks the person who commits the abuse, who's quite often referred to as the perpetrator, down into different roles they might take. So there are... Some roles that are more obvious, like the bully, is a role where the perpetrator can use physical violence, physical intimidation as part of the abuse. But then there's other roles that I hadn't really understood. So one of them is the bad father who doesn't just absent his parenting, but also makes the mum doubt her own parenting, who brings her skills into question, who can alienate the mum from her child. You have the head worker who is quite often, when we talk about psychological abuse, that is who does the manipulating, the gaslighting, that coercive control that we'll talk about in later episodes. And then you also have personas like the persuader who tells you that he'll never do it again. He only did it because he was drunk or because work is hard or because he loves you so much. He's the person who love bombs you, who buys you flowers the day after he's done something horrible, who can be so, so charming and so, so persuasive. And while not all perpetrators use all eight of the personas, what I learned, which was wake up call number two, is that the ones that are there play off each other. So one of the questions that, as time had gone on, I'd asked myself a lot, why do you stay? Why are you staying? Every time something happened, why am I staying? What am I still doing here? Well, those don't work without that persuader archetype, that person who makes things so good when he's happy. They don't work without the head worker who makes you doubt your own memories, who makes you think that you're going crazy and maybe you're the problem, maybe it is all your fault. And then wake up call number three was the realisation that not all survivors are created equal. So we often talk about gender-based violence being a man-woman issue. The woman is the victim, the man is the perpetrator. But actually in 2020, while 1.6 million women reported experiencing domestic violence... 
757,000 men reported experiencing domestic violence. That is a not insignificant amount. There's significant rates of domestic violence within the LGBTQ plus community. 41% of gay and bisexual men experience domestic violence. 20% of lesbian women who are in relationships where there's no man involved at all have experienced domestic violence in those same gender relationships. The Office of National Statistics keeps records of the rates of people in active abusive situations. So we know that 6% of heterosexual women were in actively abusive relationships, but 8% of lesbian women were in abusive relationships. And women like myself, so I'm bisexual, are one of the most at-risk groups for experiencing domestic violence, with 10.3% of bisexual women reporting being in actively abusive relationships. Now, these statistics are largely taken from people who are cisgendered, so who identify with the gender that they are assigned at birth. I talk in one of the later episodes with a non-binary person around this, but one thing we do know is that while the media loves to tell us that trans people are the ones waiting out there to abuse women in toilets and refuges and prisons... What we actually know is that 80% of trans people will experience abuse in their lifetime. They are far from being the big bad villains lurking in the shadows waiting for us. They are far more likely to experience gender-based violence themselves. In another episode later on, I discuss with an expert the impact of disability on gender-based violence as a person with three physical disabilities myself, again, I was much more likely to find myself in an abusive relationship. And that's one of the key themes we need to leave no one behind. When we reduce gender-based violence, domestic violence, down to a man-woman issue, we are not focusing our attention on the most disadvantaged groups of women and girls who are experiencing intersecting forms of harm and who are most likely to experience harm. We are not acknowledging that while it is a term that we think of in terms of men and women, the term gender-based violence is used by the UK government to apply to men who are experiencing things like domestic violence and rape, coercive control. I wanted to use the last little bit of this episode to talk about the issue that means most to me. So like I said, 2017, I was a paediatric speech therapist. I was working with young people with autism. And as a result of what I'd experienced and the work that went into healing from the 15 years that had gone before, I had a little bit of a career change. One thing that you don't necessarily appreciate when you leave the abusive relationship is that that is the end of one phase of your life but it doesn't just end there. 
So you'll hear from many of the people I interview about abuse that goes on beyond the relationship. But there's also for me another aspect, which is that when you've been in a relationship with any amount of power and control that someone's had over you, you adapt to those circumstances. You learn how to live in a way that minimizes your risk. And then you get support from the wonderful services that are out there. Their funding, most of their input is focused on the immediate aftermath. But for most survivors, once they're out, once they've been through, say, women's aid or the refuge system or whatever support they've had to leave that relationship, the support can quite rapidly drop off and yet the consequences don't just stop. I got a diagnosis of complex PTSD from my GP. That moment where I realised that yes I wasn't in that relationship anymore wasn't as joyful as I immediately thought that it could be because I didn't have a clue who I actually was. Everything that I had done for the 15 years before that was pivoted towards someone other than myself into being a good girl, a good wife, and that spilled over into being a good employee and a good daughter, and I I was desperately trying to be good. But now that I was free, I did not know who I was or how to live my life. So for me, I got therapy and that was really helpful. But the thing that helped me open up my life again was coaching. I received coaching from two wonderful women who helped me rediscover myself. Who I wanted to be, who I could be. So at the start of 2019, I decided to go and train myself to be a coach and that is what I do with my days now. I coach women who have for whatever reason lost their spark, lost their inner knowing of who they are and how they want to live their lives and I hold the space for them to create a wonderful, amazing, joy-filled life and that's what I believe every survivor can do with the right support. It, it is doable. I've done it myself. And now I help other women and non-binary people do exactly the same. Now, at the end of every episode, I'm sharing one invitation for an action that we could all do that would add towards the landslide of actions that I believe will one day end gender-based violence. Here's today's for you. So there's a wonderful book written by an amazing woman from the Northeast. Her name is Ree Pearson and her book is called Be Kind, No Excuses. It's a retired police officer's guide to help teenage girls recognise what abuse looks like and prevent themselves from getting in those abusive relationships in the first place. Now Ree has a goal to get a copy of her book into every refuge in the UK and I know she's already a certain way towards achieving that goal. 
What I would love for us to all do is to consider how amazing it would be if every school library, particularly secondary schools, had a copy of Ree's book. If the teenagers following up in the generations after us understood what to look out for, understood how abuse works, and knew how to avoid those relationships, how to disentangle themselves. I know my own story would have been a lot different. And so my invitation for you today is to get a copy off Amazon under a tenner and send it either to the school that you attended as a teenager or to the school that your children attend, to the school that is down the corner. Let's get this book into the hands of the teenagers who need it. And don't forget to join me again for tomorrow's episode, which is the first of my interviews. I'll be interviewing Sam Billingham She'll be talking about her experiences and particularly the impact domestic abuse can have on employment, offering some words of wisdom for employers out there. 